When we left our last session, we were wrestling with the nagging question of divine judgment on believers. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. If you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. If this is not a judgment regarding salvation, then what kind of judgment is it? Notice the judgment of which Peter speaks has to do with our conduct when? Look at the verse during the time of your stay on the earth. We are to act in such a manner that our character and our conduct reflect favorably on God's name. Throughout my years of ministry, I have met multitudes of men and women who recognized that they were sinners in need of a Savior. They knew they were far from God. They knew they deserved death and hell. And they repented of their sin. They placed their faith in Jesus so that they could escape hell. You hear the way I worded it? It's not so they wanted to follow God. It's so that they could escape hell. And so inevitably, they kept living like children of the devil. They did not accept the reality that their salvation has behavioral consequences in the here and the now. Hear me very, very carefully. God will not allow us to defame, disparage, or discredit his name without repercussions. When my teenagers were uh, leaving the house, I would look at them and say to them, don't forget whose you are. And they knew instantly what I meant by that. Don't do anything to embarrass the family name. When we defame God's name, he will discipline us. In Hebrews chapter 12, the author of Hebrews writes, beginning in verse 5, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children 
and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. Nobody enjoys a spanking. But sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The author of Hebrews is telling us God does not discipline us primarily to punish poor behavior. He disciplines us to motivate or encourage positive behavior. God's desire is for us to be less of what we are and more of what he wants us to be. I, I used to tell my children, I don't discipline you because I don't love you. I discipline you because I do love you. And I must confess, there are times when my kids wish they weren't loved so much. <laughs> Paul wrote to the Thessalonians a similar concept in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning with verse 10. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. Why? So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. God disciplines us because his desire is to make us less of what we are and more of what he wants us to be. And if we refuse God's discipline, the consequences can be disastrous. In 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, we find a lengthy, lengthy passage in regard to the Lord's Supper. The church at Corinth, I refer to as the battling bride. There was always conflict in the church of Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning with verse 17, Paul addresses the issue of the Lord's Supper, which was usually preceded in this particular time with a love feast. And Paul says, beginning in verse 17, 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? 
Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. They would come together for the love feast. The wealthy would eat and there would be nothing left for the poor. They were dividing the church into the haves and the have-nots, and then they would enter the Lord's Supper. So we pick it up in verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks, here's our word, judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body, that is his own body, rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Did you hear what Paul said in verse 30? For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Because they perverted the Lord's Supper, because their character did not reflect the Lord whom they were supposed to represent, because they defied God's call for how they should handle the Lord's Supper and how they should treat one another, some of these individuals had passed away. God had stricken them. They had died. No wonder Peter warned these suffering saints that horrible circumstances do not justify horrible behavior. He, he would later pin in this precious epistle in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. He would write to these suffering saints, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Our obedience or our disobedience has immediate implications in the here and the now. But our disobedience also carries future implications in the here, in the then, and the there. In 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, great passage of Scripture, 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, beginning with the ninth verse, Paul writes, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. 
For we must all appear before the judgment, there's that word again, the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Every Corinthian Christian immediately knew what Paul was talking about. The word judgment, as in the judgment seat, was the Greek word bema. And it was actually a platform or a reviewing stand for military review. When individuals would return from battle, they had returned victorious. The emperor would sit on the bema seat and the troops would parade before him. It was a great, great celebration in the city. Those soldiers who were noteworthy because of what they had done on the field of battle, because of their bravery, because of their heroism, because of their acts of sacrifice on behalf of a fellow soldier, would pause before the Bema seat and be rewarded by the emperor. The city of Corinth was also host of the Isthmian Games, second only to the Olympic Games in notoriety and prestige. At the end of the Olympic Games, all of those athletes would pass before the Bema seat, translated judgment seat, they would pass before the Bema seat and they would receive a wreath in recognition of their accomplishment during the Isthmian Games. So Paul is writing to believers and, it's say, and is saying it's the believers who will be standing before the Bema seat. This particular passage is often confused because of the last phrase that appears in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done. Here it is, whether good or bad. The word bad is a very poor translation of the Greek word used in this particular passage. And it has led to great confusion and consternation. We know that Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. Therefore, he is writing to believers. And so there was confusion. What do you mean bad? The Greek word is actually kakos. And it is best translated worthless. Let me read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 again and put in the appropriate translation. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or worthless. So the Bema seat is actually an assessment of effectiveness on how our character and our conduct demonstrate, reflect the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, did we impact the kingdom during our stay 
on the earth. Now, let, let me pause to note. We do not approach the Bema seat as inferior or, or ashamed. Every child of God on that day will know that he or she is accepted and loved by God. Why then do we conduct ourselves in fear reverence during the time of our stay on this earth? Here's the answer. In gratitude to God for what he has done in the past, and in order to have something to lay at the feet of God in the future. I do not know about you, but on that day, I do not want to stand before God empty-handed. What about you? We'll see you next session. Thank you for joining us in this session from 1 Peter. As you have been following us through this session, you have learned that Peter is seeking to encourage saints in the midst of their suffering by pointing them to the one who suffered for them and all that his suffering has made available to them. So 1 Peter is a letter of encouragement, and we hope this session has been an encouragement to you. If it has encouraged you, please let us know that. Knowing that we've encouraged you encourages us. If you are following us on YouTube, you can simply post a comment, or you can reach us at wordpowermm at gmx.com. We would love to hear from you. We'd love to know how we can minister to you further. So please reach out to us. Hopefully, we'll see you next session. God bless.